You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. America. We are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu. You're listening to episode number 47 of Living the Dream with Rory O'Malley. If you like the podcast, remember, subscribe, rate, and review it, baby. Audition, side job, swimming upstream. Believe it or not, you're living the dream. Hey there, dreamers. Rory O'Malley here. Thank you so much for listening to Living the Dream. I'm your host. I have a wonderful guest this week, Jimmy Pardo. He is hilarious because that is... It, that's his job. Literally, he is a stand-up comedian, and he has one of the most popular podcasts out there called Never Not Funny. He had me on as a guest a couple of months ago because he's a big Broadway fan, and he just reached out to me. I didn't know him, and I knew of his work, but uh, I knew the podcast, and I was kind of blown over that I got to be on such a, such a cool podcast, and he graciously agreed to be on my podcast. Now, he's a big Broadway fan, uh, has not been on Broadway, but we were in a movie musical together called Dream Girls. However, Jimmy didn't make the cut. Um, <laughs> it's still a very sore subject, as you will hear in the podcast. But he has gone on to do so many amazing things. He worked on the Conan O'Brien show as the warm-up comedian and as a part of that whole world. He has just launched a new podcast, a game show podcast called Playing Games with Jimmy Pardo. And uh, he's he. if you listen to Never Not Funny, you know they, they play games on that all the time. He has such a great story, and I love talking to stand-up comedians because they really do have to piece together work on their own, and they have to tour, just like I'm on tour right now with a, with a big show. They have to tour with their work, and the parallels between that are very interesting. However, they have to keep moving so much more than we do. I'm, I'm in Los Angeles for five months, San Francisco for five months. He's in a city for five hours and then has to drive eight hours to the next one. Um, so I, I really found that interesting talking to him about how he has not only thrived in his career, but also made his family life work with that kind of uh, career life. So listen to my wonderful conversation with the hysterical Jimmy Pardo. <laughs> this is going to be very disturbing for the Living the Dream listeners. Um, we're in Jimmy Pardo's studio for his never not funny podcast recording on real equipment and i said oh no no we don't need to i don't want my listeners to get, <laughs> get spoiled, to, for, to one episode? spoiled for one episode of having actual microphones like professionals but jimmy insisted 
Did I insist? I yeah, offered, it was an insist. I offered like he, a gentleman. He, he listened to a couple of my episodes <laughs> and said, oh, Rory, you need help. <laughs> well, sure for humor, I said that. For humor. You did. You did. No, I mean, I am so excited because I've, I every time I go and do another podcast and I'm wearing headphones that actually work and a microphone that's right in front of my face. So I, and I know that the, the guests can actually hear themselves. I never have that. Like, it's always just this one microphone in between us, and they can't hear themselves, which sometimes I like because they forget that they're being recorded. Right. Which is kind of nice. It's like they're having, you're just having a conversation yeah. in a restaurant or something. Yes. Yeah. At some point, like 20 to 30 minutes in, they're like, oh, yeah, there's this microphone here. And not that they're saying anything too crazy, but it definitely gives a little more of a vulnerable conversation. So just sure. pretend like. I uh, there's no microphones. Been doing this a long time. Yeah, so I will forget instantly. You just assume that you're always in front of a microphone. Is what Uh, I can tell about you, and that I can say whatever (laughs) I want, uh, good or bad. You know, and and Twitter lets me know uh, when it's bad. More Facebook than Twitter. Yeah, Facebook is definitely you will get a lot more. They seem feedback. Oh boy, as as we will say, especially in these outspoken times. Yeah, yeah. I actually really avoid Facebook. I don't I, – I have like a, a Facebook page that's, you know, a quote-unquote fan page or, mm-hmm. an you know, as an actor, a professional page. And so I only put things on it and I never look at what people say. And that's been kind of nice. It's nice not – but it, I, we just talked about this on, on uh, Never Not Funny is I feel bad when I post something on there because it's connected to my Twitter account. Yeah. That when I post something on Twitter, it connects to the Facebook page and then – and it might be – you know, anti-Trump or anti, you know, whatever's yeah. going on in our world right now. And I don't comment on it either. And I just kind of let the fans fight amongst themselves. Right. And I feel like, well, I, I should say something in this argument. And I kind of just go, nope. 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 Just let this, him. Let this him guy's saying it better than I ever could. Like, right. Yeah. But I kind of feel bad. Like I throw, I literally throw uh, the, the, the bomb in the middle yeah. and then just walk away and let them yeah. uh, figure it out. And that doesn't seem fair. Well, it, it's, it's what social media is. It's a place to get out your aggression. Yeah, I guess you know? it is. That's what it's turned into. And, you know, I mean, I was hopeful that Twitter and Facebook would be connecting us to make great things happen, to raise money for charity and, you know, come together around causes, which it does, it does obviously. Do but the flip side is that it really has brought people's misery out into the masses. Yeah. I really feel that's like why we're where we are is because of social media. Is that too much credit given to social media? No, I don't disagree with that. It's because people, and I know it's cliched, but it's easy to sit behind your keyboard in your, yeah. at your cubicle or at your in your uh, home office and just go, you know, rattle something off, press send. Yeah. And then go, you know, not worry about, oh, what did I just say? Right. Things you would never say yeah. to a human. And again, I know that has been talked about uh, ad nauseum. But, yeah, uh, but especially when you're anonymous and it's... But, but I just feel like well, one of the reasons that I started a podcast was because I was tired of these 140 character conversations or these so, these very well curated um, social media posts that made life as a Broadway actor look like it was just amazing mm-hmm. all the time. I felt like I was lying to the children, Jimmy. Ooh. I mean, I don't want to lie to the children. <laughs> They're our future. They're our we future, were taught that in song. God, it's so true. Um, and uh, podcasts have been such a great way to have 
you know, you want to call them like this new medium, but it's a conversation with another human being. Yes. And having someone listen, listening to conversations can tell you so much more about a person rather than just, you know, their Twitter feed, their Facebook feed. You yes. are, you, you started podcasts. Oh, well. Now I know you're not going to, I, I know that you didn't start, you maybe you didn't name it a podcast. Maybe it wasn't, you know you're not I'm not going to call you like the the father of podcasts but you are one of the first people you're a pioneer in in this medium we're embracing the song, the word pioneer and, okay. and Matt Belmet my co-host yes, gets Matt. most of the credit because he talked me into doing it really uh, yeah he he came to me I was doing a live show at the UCB theater here in LA a non-televised nice. talk show okay and um he said we should make this into it, and he was met my coach, my now the guy that I sit with twice to three yeah. times a week for the last eleven going on twelve years yeah. was just a fan of mine, and he would wow. come to all my shows. He and his wife, and he came to me and said we should make it was called Running Your Trap with Jimmy Pardo, and we should make that into a podcast. And I didn't, I kind of knew what that meant, and because Ricky Gervais had a podcast and The Onion had a podcast, and right. there was a lot of tech podcasts. So he's like, I was like, okay, I don't know what that means. So we recorded my live show a couple of times, thinking that would be the podcast, and it it didn't work at all. So I said to him, "Let's abandon that idea and make it as much like a radio show as possible. Let's have a theme song. Let's welcome people in. Let's have a almost like an opening monologue, and then um, have a guest come on." And people responded immediately. And I I think it, it, a lot of it has to do with Matt because he good sound equipment to go right. back to that. Yeah. Uh, we sounded professional. It wasn't me just talking into the microphone on my computer like a lot of podcasts at that time were doing. Yeah. And I came from, I was a professional comedian. Yeah. And I knew how to entertain people. Right. And so luckily, I think people liked it. Yeah. And here we are 12 years later and quite frankly, I mean, it's my job. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, at what point did it go from being this thing that you were doing just to put out into the world to your job? I mean, now it's it's pretty substantial, like because it's not easy to take a podcast. Let me tell you, yeah. And and I make zero dollars off of my podcast. But that's your choice. That is that that is my choice. It's like what you know, how much I want to have of a commitment to it. I love having the conversation. But even if I wanted to make money off of it. I mean, we're talking maybe I could pay the 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 parking bill. You know, like Wait, that, uh, you don't want to pay that bill. You I don't mean, want. I you, do. you don't want something like that parking. I do. Sure, sure. You know, it's 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 maybe some gas money, right? Um, but you know, you've made such an amazing thing that has launched so many other podcasts. It has, and and thank you for bringing that. We you know we we did it for two years for free, and then honestly, the podcast thing wasn't happening. Yeah. And it was like, I kind of felt like this loser doing cable access television, right. where it's like, oh, Julie's doing a podcast. And I, I, would, I would almost feel embarrassed. Hey, you want to come and do my podcast? What's a podcast? Well, right. we sit around and talk. Why? Yeah. So we would do, we did that for two years. And again, we had a really nice audience, a cult-like niche audience. Uh, but Matt and I were like, I don't think this podcast thing's going to take off. You know, uh-huh. why don't we try going to a pay model? If X amount of people come along with us, great. Uh, if they don't, well, then we tried and we move on with our lives yeah. and podcast will be dead in a year and a half anyway. Who cares? <laughs> so we did it and more people came along than we hoped. And all of a sudden it's like, okay, we're doing this thing and we're making money doing it. And then the podcast boom exploded. I mean, the comedy podcast. Boom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
and it exploded. And meanwhile, it's exploding while Matt and I and Never Not Funny is behind a paywall and nobody knows we exist right. except for our audience. Right. Which was great. It was a living. Right. Um, and then years down the line, after doing that paywall of having this small audience, we, my buddy Scott Arkerman, who had been asking us for years to join the Earwolf Network and have Never Not Funny be one of the anchors of, of Earwolf, yeah. we finally were like, it's time to take the risk of let's put out a free episode once a week in addition to a paid episode. And it worked. And it was like, it, it's, I've made a lot, you know, you know, this business, you, yeah. you take chances and you, and uh, it's the one thing other than my son that I've done right. You know, it's like I've done, uh, the podcast thing worked out. And yeah. obviously we'd still like to have more listeners and, and maybe be, you know, there was a time where we were in the conversation more than, than we are. Uh, right. And, I would I would like to have that back, but so that people more people knew about it and, and enjoyed us. Yeah, uh, not for fame or anything like that, but more for just people to enjoy my nonsense. More than anything I've ever been on, because you had me on the podcast, and I was so honored to be on it and had so much fun. I mean, had, right, thank had you. the best time. I'm so glad because we we oh. were so excited. Matt and I are, as you know, as I told you on the show, and I'll tell your listeners. We're the biggest, I mean, the world is our Hamilton fans these days, but right. I was in early because our our mutual friend, Anthony Rapp, told me yes, about it. Yes, yes. So I went, I saw it in New York, then I saw it in Chicago, then I saw it in San Francisco, then I saw it here. And uh, that's right, I've seen it in all four cities Yeah, uh, because I'm a rich a-hole. <laughs> and none of that's true. <laughs> all of it, all of it was like, should we do this? <laughs> but when you, when I saw you in San Francisco, uh, San Francisco and then here, and it was like, I have a feeling this guy'd be a great guest on our show. And I'm basing that just on what nine minutes of singing on stage. Yeah. But yeah. there was something about you and then your personality on Twitter where Matt goes, We should reach out to this guy. And yeah. you fit in wonderfully. And that's even comics sometimes where he can't fit into this yeah. whirlpool of ours sure. very easily. And you fit in wonderfully. Well, uh, it's, a, it's, it's so a, we were honored to have you on, is my great. point. Good. Well, I, I had the best time. I mean, I, I was like, oh, it's time to go. It was like, it had been an hour. I had so much fun. And I've never had so many people respond to me after an interview or a, a podcast or something being like, oh, my God, you are never not funny because you have such loyal listeners, people who are so excited. And then because I was on your podcast, I've done like two Earwolf podcasts. Yeah, I don't like that at I know, all. I know. You're ours, Mario Bailey. Don't cheat on us. You would literally were like, why are you doing so many Earwolf podcasts? It was you were, you're ours. Infuriating. <laughs> but hey, they were they were a lot of fun. I did Dave Holmes and I D- did. Dave's a great friend of our show. We love I know. Dave. And that's why I did it. He was literally like, oh my gosh, you're in Los Angeles. Would you do our show yeah. for the gays? I did a, a show for the gays, homophilia. And then I did the off book podcast. Which is fun. So fun. Yeah. Oh, my God. Um, but I feel like this room and what you, the dynamic that you guys have, this is like the epicenter of where podcasts were wow. born. And I know that, y- you know, you're not going to take credit for creating podcasts, but the modern podcast, what it is and why it had a boom is certainly because you you wow. and Matt and this this group of people came up with that format. Well, you're again. So I have a lot. I'm very thankful and grateful to you for I, that. You're, you're welcome. Thank you. But I think, no, thank you for, I mean, because it's uh, um, a lot, you know, Mark Merritt is kind enough to mention us in almost every interview. Scott Ackerman mentions us. I know Hardwick does. Um, and I do, it's, I do feel like the beta tape sometimes in yeah. that we were in so early on this thing and then VHS came along and, well, you know, it's still great. It's that part over on beta. Yeah. Uh, so I appreciate you saying that. And, yeah. uh, you know, we're still here and people seem to be loving our show more than ever. Yeah. And I know I'm having more fun than ever. Um, yeah. 
Uh, boy, that sounded like Hillary Clinton trying to convince herself <laughs> that she's doing okay after that loss. I'm having more fun than ever. <laughs> I'm fine. Breathing in separate nostrils. Yes. You know, I, what was that? She said she's she's getting over the election by breathing, doing uh, alternate nostril what? breathing. And I haven't read up on it, but I've been trying it. How do you do? You have to hold the one nostril I, to do it, or yes, or you, you have can to you train hold, yourself to. No, I think you have to hold the nostril. She was doing it on a on an interview. What does it do? Um. It helps you get over losing a presidential election. Does it? I guess we'll help, keep trying. It's helping her. <laughs> we'll, keep trying. <laughs> we'll keep trying. It's yes. going to take about four years. Yeah. Um, okay. Okay. So we we talked about the podcast. Yes. I want to let's go to the beginning. Okay. The, a very good place to start. All right. You're from Chicago. I'm from the south side of Chicago. You're, yes. Oh, okay. More specifically, that's a, that is a very specific it, thing. It, to it's important. Chicago. Yeah. Why is that? Why is it? Um, uh, I kind of grew up. I initially was at 79th and Cicero, which is on the obviously on the south side, and then right. we moved to 87th and Cicero, and then we moved to 156th and Cicero. Okay. We just kind of kept heading south away from the city. Right. Um, as things were changing. Sure. And. The South Side, and I'm very, very lucky that I was not raised this way, but the South Side is very close-minded, very scared of anything that's not white is, I guess, the best way to put it. Sure. Um, So that's why it's important to point out. It's like I grew up in an area that getting into the arts was not really uh, seen as a cool thing to do. You were a jock or you weren't, you know, or maybe you were a... Uh, uh, a carpenter or a mechanic sure. like a mechanic had more like uh, you know don works on cars that guy was cooler than me singing joy to the world at the yeah. choir, choir yeah. you know yeah. um so it was uh, the south side is not the north side which the the arts are embraced and the west side the arts are embraced huh. and at least at the time maybe it's changed but when i was growing up i was not uh cool sure at all sure you stood out uh but I stood out not in a great way. You right. know, it was like, uh, yeah. you know, I mean, I, I was called, uh, you know, the F word sure. a lot. Uh, sure. You know, as I always say in the Chicago accent. Which one's that, Jimmy? Oh, you know it. <laughs> but I was called a lot. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and and by design, I grew up in that era where that word was ex- more acceptable. Sure. Uh, Thrown around a lot more. You yeah. know what's funny is that I'm never, I was never really called that word growing up as a kid. I have been called that word by strangers on the street passing when I wear a Cleveland Cavaliers hat. What? I know. I this is I I I I think it's like a straight guy thing because they're not calling me a fag. We can say, we can say it. Uh, we're they're not calling me a fag. They're calling my hat a fag. You know the fact that I love the Cavs, that right. I love LeBron, or that I love my hometown. So I feel like I was like all of a sudden I was in this just by putting on a, a Cleveland Cavs hat. Right. I was in this like straight world of of dudes of bros. And so you would be walking down the street. You would just uh, you know, I could I had ever. I I heard somebody. I've, it's happened just twice. Okay, but twice is kind of like enough zero. for me then yeah. to be like, wow, because no one ever says that. I've not, I'm not used to that. And I knew they weren't calling me that because I'm gay. They were calling me that because I was wearing a Cavs hat. And I thought, wow, that's that that word is used between straight men so much yes. to cut each other down. So I know it's less, but I can only imagine on the south side of Chicago. In the 70s and 80s and and to a lesser extent the 90s. But, you know, growing up in the 70s and 80s, it was kind of like, admittedly, I didn't know that it was derogatory towards the gay community. I did not know that. To me, it was just a word that you went, well, that guy's gay, that guy's a fag. And, And it was like, 
oh, those are just funny words. Yeah. Then as you get older, it's like, maybe we shouldn't be saying that to each other. <laughs> right. Um, right. But there's still, that was the mentality I grew up in. And, and you know, I was called a fag because I liked girls, you know, by yeah. the jocks, which was weird. Right. Like, they're all playing football and grab ass. And, you know, I'm kissing yeah. the girls. And like, look at that faggot kissing yeah, girls. How gay. Right. <laughs> it, it made no sense, of course. But it was, it was rough. You know, it was yeah. rough to be a kid that, you know, may or may not have had a decent singing voice. Did not. Um, <laughs> But wanted so badly to be the lead in the play and do yeah. all this, and because I wasn't good at sports, uh, and I enjoyed it. I mean, that's what I loved doing. And yeah. Um, so yeah, on the south side, again, specifically where I grew up, was not an easy decision to be. I'm going to be the theater guy. I'm going to be, you know, maybe in a rock band in high school and and be that as opposed to, you know, being accepted and being on the homecoming court and all that. Yeah, yeah. But you found. It, like some kind of solace? Did you find some kind of like oasis in the in the theater? Did you find friends? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Like it, you it, made your own group. Yeah, I, I did. Um, you know, grade school was a little bit better for me than than high school. Grade school, we I, I grew up in a place called Hometown, believe it or not. Okay, which is really really small. Just on again, very we shared a street with the city of Chicago. Uh, but it was one mile by one mile, and it felt like Mayberry, even huh. though Chicago was literally a guardrail away. Yeah, it's a lot of R's and L's for me. <laughs> Um, and we all knew each other and we all were friends with each other. And obviously there was different cliques and stuff, but we all kind of were friendly with each other. Yeah. Then when we moved and I started a new high school, that's where it was like, oh, this is all about athletics. This is all about, you've got to be great at football. You got to be great at baseball to fit in. And it finally, when the spring uh, play had auditions, which was uh, bye bye birdie and my English teacher, a woman named Linda Deutsch, who I think I thank her to this day. Um, is the biggest inspiration to me. And another guy by the name of Stephen Page, who was the choir director, um, she came to me and she said, did you hear the announcement? They're doing Bye Bye Birdie for the spring play. All are welcome. And I, don't, I didn't really know what that meant at the time. I think maybe she thought it, maybe I'd be afraid or whatever. So I auditioned for Bye Bye Birdie. I thought I could play Conrad Birdie as a three foot two yeah. freshman. There's no chance that Total was going to happen. Um, or even, uh, I can't pull the name, uh, the Fred McMurray role, uh, the Dick Van Dyke role. Oh, oh, Fred Albert. 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 Yeah. Uh, I thought I could play that. And I yeah. got cast as Randolph McAfee, the, you know, the nine-year-old boy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, who gets to sing, you know, the reprise of kids at the Ed Sullivan yeah. show. And, uh, and I got cast in that and I made, you know, it's like all of a sudden, as, and you know this, I'm with my people. Yeah, I'm you with find your people. I'm with, you know, a guy named Gary Sharon, a guy named Fred Hagen, and a girl named Karen LaFerre. And and it's like, uh, oh my God. We, we could we could have fun. We could be ourselves. We don't have to pretend that we're cool walking down the the halls. We could yeah. talk. I mean, it was, you know, I mean, you know this. Yeah. It was night and day. And I was uh, it was like I, it, my my wife and I call the phrase community theater blues because then the play ends and you gotta go back to real life. Yeah. And it's like Oh, now Fred's back with his, he's a senior, so he's back with his friends, and Gary's a junior back with his friends. And yeah. Hey, guys, remember we were just all best of friends for six weeks? Yeah. And it's like, you get depressed. Oh, yeah. Because you thought, you've, I thought I found my friends. Community theater blues, I have the, bro- I can get the Broadway blues. It's like you, you finish that show, that community that you create, and you go back into the real world. And it is, it's sometimes it's hard to get out of bed. I can't, I, could, I couldn't even imagine. Day. I, I. It's it's a lot. It's a lot. And I mean, 
But when you're in high school, it's that's what enrages me when they want to cut funding for arts programs. Those programs are saving lives. They really are. They're saving lives. My my life was saved because of the theater education. I 100% agree with that. If if my school didn't have theater, I I don't know what because we didn't at the time. There wasn't the what they're all this today where where, um, you know there were outside activities for kids, which the kids need today because they can't just run outside and play. Right. that wasn't happening in the 80s. You know, it was like if the school didn't have theater, I would have found, I, I don't know what I would have done, but right. it would have been something and it wasn't a theater troupe nearby accepting right. teens. Uh, yeah. So I'm, I'm with you. Thank God. It, as small as my high school was and I, I hope the theater department was not huge at all. We did one play a year, maybe two if we were lucky. Um, thank God yeah. for it. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and, and is that how you started doing comedy and stand up when you were you that young or was was that did that come I'm later? told I was I'm told I was funny okay uh, and I'm told like uh, I tell this story uh, every now and then when I went back to a we had a grade school reunion yeah and um I went back to the reunion and we uh, it was in between when Conan was uh after NBC and before TBS in that little weird okay. little window where we weren't on the air yeah yeah and I went back and I thought uh, well this is gonna blow some minds I'm working in television you know and yeah and I went back and and nobody was impressed because they expected it. Right. And it was like, it, part of me was like, I, I wanted to feel like the big shot coming back to town going, look, you know, daddy's here. Yeah. yeah like, Sit around, children. I'll tell you show yeah, business yeah, stories. Yeah. And part of me also then loved the fact that nobody kissed my ass. You know, yeah. they all treated me just like this idiot that I was back in those days. And they all, like I said to them before, I, I said to somebody, you know, why does nobody think it's neat that I work at Kona there? Because we, we expected you to. Right. You were the funniest kid, even at in, at twelve and thirteen. It would have been crazy if you didn't go into comedy. Yeah. But I don't remember it that way. I kind of just remember being funny to not get my ass kicked, mm. you know, to not get beat up in high school, to diffuse as a tool to yeah. avoid the the conflict. With, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you you did you start doing stand up in Chicago? Uh here's what happened, Rory. I moved. To Pasadena, California, in the mid '80s, to go to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. Ah, and I went there. I had taken a year off from high school. Okay, and I managed record stores, and which is where I really found a great group of people to be friendly with. We, we were kind of we were the misfits that didn't go to college, right? And so we're all, uh, or they had already gone to college and come yeah, back, yeah, yeah, and blah, yeah. blah 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 blah. This is in Chicago. This is in Chicago, uh, and we were all music. We uh, big loved music, and yeah. we all had a, the same. While it wasn't the same bands that we liked, we had an appreciation of the of, of music and cassettes and yeah. albums and CDs. And so there was that group of friends, and I felt like an adult, and I felt like um, you know I didn't go to college. I'm not. I'm not doing uh, you know uh, uh, beer bongs, and I'm not putting a cherry at my ass to get in a frat and whatever they make you do to yeah, get yeah, hazed. Yeah. And I felt like an adult. I'm, you know, I've got the keys to a store. They're trusting this moron yeah. to open up a store every day. And um, I just kind of, I felt like an adult. So when I got, but I also felt like I love this, but it's not, I want to be an actor. I want to be a performer. So I applied to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, which uh, to get accepted, I'm 100% sure you just need a check. <laughs> um I say that that's enough for a lot of things in this business, you know. Like, I guess it just is. Need to check; you can get uh, a lot done. But I panicked. I did my monologues and all that. And, yeah, and I got accepted, and I I was thrilled that I got accepted. And I drove uh, my friend Dave drove me out from Chicago to Pasadena and wow. had to find an apartment. And uh, I lived in this woman's house named Faith, who 
rented out her mansion in Pasadena. We all had rooms. We all some people went to the academy, some didn't. Wow. And um, and I think some other famous people ended up. Uh, let me rephrase that. Some famous people also lived there. Uh, <laughs> I'm not in any way, uh, but. I moved in there. I had a room that was smaller than this, you know, studio, and which was a bed and a and a, a, a toaster oven, basically, and a hot yeah. plate. Which to this day, I don't know how to use one of those. It scares the <laughs> hell out of me. I'm going to burn down the building it's just to burn down the building. It yes. would frighten me. Yeah, that's it. So I went to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, and and the whole reason I brought up about I felt like an adult is everybody else that I was going to class with was just right out of high school, right. and they were still in that high school mode of, you know. Uh, of everything's safe. There's no real world out there. And we now we come here and we get to dance and we get to sing and we get to do Shakespeare and we get to do monologues. And I kind of felt like this adult that was better than them. And so and realistically, I didn't have the discipline to learn as much as I could have at that school. Sure. I felt like I, I challenged the teachers and everything uh, maybe to try to look cool. I don't really remember why I did it. Right. But I challenged the teachers. I was a pain in the ass. I... um I, I should have been more I, I literally thought I was an adult by acting like a child. Yeah. And so after one year of the academy, uh it was decided that I would not come back for a second year. Sure. Um and I was Which happens like in a lot of schools after a first year people aren't asked to come back for a second year. Yeah. And it, it's like there's sometimes like a quota of like people that they don't But I was devastated. Yeah, of course. And, and but at the same time understood it. It's like hmm. well, I wouldn't have had me back either. I'm yeah. kind of an a-hole. Why would I have this guy, talented or not, why would I put up with this guy's nonsense? Why right. he won't just toe the line? And so uh, I, uh, everybody there that I went to school with at the academy were all like, you got to go to, you know, you got to be a comedian. You know, you're a comedian. You're the funniest guy in the world. You got to be a comedian. Yeah. And I had done Second City right out of high school okay. in Chicago. Of course, that's where it started. Right? And that's, I learned, I honestly learned more in those six months uh, at Second City than I did at the Academy. And sure. again, I, maybe because I was more comfortable, I don't know. So when I challenged why, even though I understood it, when I challenged uh, Bryn Meyer, I believe was the gentleman's name, who ran the Academy at the time, probably since passed away. When I challenged him and I said, why am I not being accepted back? And they went, well, we can't deny your talent. I recommend you go back to Chicago. You do Second City. Or in reality, you should do stand-up. They said that to you? Yeah. Wow. And I was like, Okay, uh, all right, and I still was like, "Well, f you! I should yeah. be going here. Yeah. I'm the best, you know." Yeah, yeah. And I got in my car, and my brother flew out. We drove back to Chicago, and I, um, I turned 21, and uh, uh, on, let's say I turned 21 on a Thursday. I don't know if that's accurate. On that Sunday, after I turned 21, I went to the comedy club and signed up for the open mic. Wow! And I signed, did. You have to be 21. I yeah. thought you did. Oh, you thought you did, but who maybe knows? you didn't. Right. Right. So I signed up as Jim Pardo, and the friends that came with me to support, they went, but we call you Jimmy. You're Jimmy Pardo. Yeah. It's like, yeah, okay. And so I'm Jimmy Pardo, and that was my first open mic. And uh, when I was 21, I did a few, and then uh, honestly, I felt overwhelmed. I felt yeah. overwhelmed, and I kind of bailed on it for a little while. Uh, okay. That would have been 87, uh, July, August, September of 87. I, about a year later, uh, October of 88 is where I then really did my first open mic. Well, what t talk about that overwhelming feeling because you have, you're a funny person. Everyone's like, you can do this. You've got this. You've got people coming with you to sign up. Like, you've got support yeah. to do it. 
What was that overwhelming feeling? How, um, and and I'll, I've I've done some stand up. Okay, as I think I've told you. Yeah, it's scary as hell. It's very scary because you're literally saying, "Hey, I've got some jokes right. that you're supposed to laugh at." Yeah. So let's see what happens. I'm important enough for all of you to look at me and listen right. to me. And right. um, I was more overwhelmed, I think, by the community. Like they, uh, this was in the comedy boom, by the way, where everybody yeah. in the world thought they were a comic at the end of the eighties and early nineties. Yeah. And I just admittedly was over, I was just, you'd show up and you put your name on and you'd hope to get three minutes. And then so, and sometimes you weren't chosen to get on stage and you'd just get back in your car. Like I just drove 45 minutes to hear no, which we, of course, in this business happens. Yeah. Every audition really. Yeah. Um, 95% of the time. Right. And it's the 5% that you, happens. yeah. Uh, I, you know, I just, I ended up then going back and doing some community, uh, community theater, you know, some, you know, the, the, you know, the classics, you right. know, uh, uh, don't eat the daisies. That can't be the name of it. That is a classic. <laughs> don't a, eat the daisies. Please don't eat the daisies. That's what it is. I'm close. <laughs> okay. So, you know, I did, uh, you know, Bleacher Bums was huge in Chicago. And oh, so yeah, I did yeah. that. And, okay. And I was then, I felt another, I found another group of friends that I felt comfortable with these, but these were mechanics and these were people that had, you know, accountants that had everyday jobs. And we did community theater at night. Yeah. And that felt safe, whereas sure. stand-up still felt like I was risking too much of maybe my soul, my ego, any of it. It felt like I was like really setting myself up to fail. And then what ended up happening is I was at that time managing a record store, and I apologize, this is a long-winded answer. I was managing a different record store, uh-huh. and Bob Odenkirk, who now is Emmy-nominated actor, yeah. he was a customer of mine. Huh. Who I thought his name was Tom because I went to high school with a guy named Tom Odenkirk. <laughs> so he would come into my store every uh, Saturday morning because he would go out to Naperville. I worked at a place called Orange's Records and Tapes in Naperville, Illinois. He would go out from the he would come from the city to visit his parents every Saturday. Uh-huh. So every Saturday morning he would stop in my record store and he would buy something and we would make each other laugh. But to me, he was just Tom, you know. <laughs> and uh, it turned out he ended up calling me Johnny and we didn't know each other's names, but mm-hmm. we made each other laugh. And he said to me, uh, yeah, this was in October of 88. Uh, he said, you are the funniest guy I've ever met. Who's not a, who's not a comedian. You should do stand up." And I was like, yeah, a lot of people tell me that. And you know, we hear that all the time as comedians that the guy at the office is told, yeah, you're funny. You should yeah, be a stand up. And they shouldn't. No. And I was like, you know what? Way too many people are telling me this. So he said, my friend, Bill Gorgo runs a show here in town right here in Naperville, tonight. Come and watch it. If you like it, you should do this. So I got two of my friends that uh, that had initially come with me to those open mics a year prior. Yeah. And I walk in, a guy named Bill Leff, who now does radio in Chicago, uh, WGN, and, uh, and I went to high school with Bill Leff. Okay. And I walk in, and Bill's there. And I said, Bill. And he goes, are you on the show? I go, I'm not on the show. I'm, I came to watch uh, Odenkirk. And he goes, you're the funniest guy in high school. You, you, you've got to be doing this. And right. it's like, all right, I apparently have to be doing this. Right. And so these are all the, signs. These are all right, yeah. and people that I think are hysterical yeah. are telling me to do this. So in '88, I went in, and I uh, in October of '88, basically is when I committed entirely to being a comedian. My first paid gig was February of '89. Is when I started making money. July of '89, I quit my day job. Wow. And I've not had a day job since July of 89. Wow. Yeah, I've made my living, good or bad. I've declared bankruptcy. I've done yeah, yeah, horrible, yeah. you know, things like Yeah, but you've you've been you've put all your chips in. Yeah. In and comedy. I got lucky, Rory, in that again, I started at the in the middle of the boom. 
uh, and maybe the boom was even on its way. The comedy was kind of getting overexposed. Yeah. Um, every bar had a comedy night. Every right. there was comedy clubs went from Monday to Sunday. Uh, you know, two shows a night sometimes on a Wednesday or a Thursday. It People was crazy. T- that's that's the comedy boom. People talk yeah. about that all the time. Like what? It, so. It's just that people were showing up to comedy clubs. It was it was disco. See, yeah. It was disco. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it ended up being then karaoke for a lot of the '90s, right. but that's what, what people wanted. But it was people left their homes to go to comedy clubs, and they right. loved it, and it was the hip thing to do. Yeah, and it ended up getting watered down, and it was horrible. And a lot of people, again, that office guy that was told he was funny did comedy. Yeah. Um, but the cliche is true: the cream rises. Those guys all go back to their day jobs. Yeah. Um, and I had, because of my quote-unquote theater background, yeah. I had great stage presence. Even if I wasn't being funny, I never looked like I was failing because I had, I knew how to... Fake it till you make it. Yeah, I knew how to <laughs> sing something from Anything Goes. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, I exactly. I would fake it till I made it. And I would pro- I probably would bomb 80% of the time. Yeah. But they needed a body. They needed human beings that knew how to keep an audience's attention. And whether or not they were laughing... They were certainly looking my direction and listening. Yeah. And uh, eventually I figured it out. Eventually, you know, people for years told me, you are the funniest guy off stage. Once you figure that out on stage, you're going to be huge. And it would it would anger me because I was like, well, I'm making, I quit my day job. I'm making my living. What do you mean once I figure it out on stage? I'm, I'm getting booked. I work 52 weeks a year. What are you talking about? Yeah. And then it finally happened around 92, 93. Where my friend Paul Gilmartin, who's my friend uh, friend to this day, was in my wedding party. and He's one of my best friends in the world. He said it in a way, and I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was uh, the vibe of when you get as funny on stage as you are off stage, there'll be no stopping you or whatever, mm-hmm. however he said it. And I abandoned my act and just decided to go back to what I was doing at open mics, which was improvise, talk off the top of my head. Uh, stream of consciousness sort of thing. Wow. And um, I would, then it's what, who I am today. Yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, that's bas- basically y- your podcast is you're improvising yeah. as you go and you're having conversations with people just as you would have with somebody in the audience. But right. do you feel like, to me, that's way more scary than going up there and having my jokes ready? But it wasn't for me huh. because my jokes sucked. I mean that's that's the truth. I wasn't my jokes weren't great. They but, were, but but I, I mean I doubt that they sucked. Oh, I, I can show you some tapes. <laughs> I showed my worry. I showed my wife a tape of one of my when I first started. She went, if I saw that, I would think you don't have any time left in this business. Really? Like it was. It's wow, horrible. Like even my special on Comedy Central, which is in two thousand two now, which is fifteen years ago. Yeah. I watch that and cringe, you know? I'm sure we all do as artists. Oh, yeah, yeah. But it's like, I even watch that and go, why would anybody listen to that? You know, and, uh, you know, we're always growing, obviously. Uh, No, my jokes were horrible. They were (laughs) But I mean, you you had to find the the thing that made you authentic and that gave you something real because that, like... Good comedy is always based in authenticity and like, you know, when people really believe it. I, I have to say as an actor, I, I'm, I'm a huge comedy fan. And, you know, I'm, even though I'm not a stand-up, I did it basically because I was so obsessed with it and love good comedians. And, and I've learned so much by studying how they perform because I literally – I, I saw some comedians working on material, and then I saw them perform it at uh, Carnegie Hall like a year and a half later. And I was like, oh my gosh, 
It's exactly the same words that they were using、mm-hmm. when they were reading them off a piece of paper. They've been working on this, yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And honestly, all of a sudden, it clicked in my head. Oh, comedians are writers who make you think that they're just telling this off the cuff of、right. their, like that they're just talking off the cuff at a party, and that you're at you just happen to be at that party. And some people are great at it, and some people you see the paper. Yes, you know what I mean. Like, exactly. For lack of a better way, and to put for it. you. To be able to just literally be off the cuff, to just have a conversation with people in that moment, which is clearly your forte, and why we're in a studio right now, where that's what you do、mm. for hours every week.、Um, to be able to find that, it it had to be so liberating, and I'm clearly it, what is what launched you into your success. Well, a,、uh, a thank you.、Uh, B. Yeah, it was like、uh, it really was, and it was liberating. And I again, I went through a phase where I bombed again a lot because I couldn't always find the funny.、Right. I also went through an anger phase because I had had at the very time that I started that abandon my act, I had a huge breakup, and、uh-huh. so I was angry at the world、uh, because of this breakup. So I would bring that anger on stage, and Larry Wilmore, who now is yeah wonderful,、uh, well, he was great then. Yeah. He gave me what is to this day, and I give it to all young people that I don't know why I'm talking like a mentor, but to all young comics that want to do crowd work, and not every comic should do crowd work. If you're a great joke writer, do that. I beg of you, do that.、Yeah. I wish I could. Larry Wilmore said to me, "Not every audience member is stupid. <laughs> not everybody that heckles you is dumb." And it was the best advice I was ever given because I assumed even if somebody was agreeing with me, if they yelled out, it was like, "Shut up, you idiot!" Right. And now I say that to them. But they get that I'm kidding. Right. Back then, I said it because I meant it. It's like because I felt like the only way I could win this is if I take all that anger out from this horrible breakup or the way I was treated in high school, and I put it all on this guy. Right. I'm going to be funny. And said it wasn't. It was just like, why is this little guy yelling at us? Yeah.、Um, But that is so to me that like heckling. That is insane. Like you understand, like for a, like a, a Broadway performer, if somebody in the audience started yelling, "Not funny,"、right. I would be like, "Remove this man!" Well, you should <laughs> remove the him. Theater. I mean, how do you? So you're saying that his advice to you about that was that they're not stupid. Well, the one, not all. No, no. His advice was they're not, not all, all stupid.、Okay. I was treating every person that interacted with me as if they were trying to. Make me look stupid, yeah, and or to make me look the fool, and so I treated everybody would go, "You're the best." Go shut, up, shut your mouth, yeah, and or you know you suck would get the same response. So it,、right. and it was like that was a wake up call for me to then if somebody is saying something, you know, find the funny in that. Don't just put them down, yeah.、Um, and、uh, but now I'm to the point where you are.、So、if somebody heckles me in the audience, it's like, can we just get them out? I don't,、yeah. I don't have the energy to deal with that guy. I'd rather just be funny. Yeah. You know, there was a time in my career I begged for hecklers so I could get that anger out of me. But now it's like, dude, on, you're ruining everybody's night. night. Yeah. And it's usually a dude. Some, if it's a woman, she's usually drunk and、yeah. doesn't realize she's being annoying. Right. If it's a dude. It's usually a guy whose girlfriend is laughing too much, or their buddies are laughing too much, and they feel emasculated, and they want to then win so their girlfriend thinks they're cool. That's, I mean, again, I've been doing this a long time, so yeah, these are、yeah. not.、Uh, well, they may sound like broad strokes, and、uh, but、right. it's、Even、pretty they, accurate. Yeah, it's just crazy to me. It's also it's it's like awful, but at the same time, I kind of love it. Not because I think it's acceptable. It's Totally unacceptable, but I love that it's an art form that provokes people so much that they 
feel like they c- can stand up and say something too. And I know you're looking at me, you're cringing, but I, I do, I just, I think it's in, I think it's like, it's, you know, back in, in Shakespearean times when, you know, they would throw things at actors. Yeah. I know that's not good. I don't want that to happen. I know, but, I, but I'm seeing there's something very visceral about it. Do you know what I'm saying? I, and the art form is so visceral and it really can like provoke things in people and a lot of alcohol involved. I think, but- <laughs> I think that's a lot of it. But like you say, what if it happened during your show? Oh, what if you- they yelled out in the middle of Which, terrible. by the way, nobody would ever do because they're st- – well, it, it's it's happened. It's well, happened. Well, then you know what, Larry Wilmore is wrong about those guys. They're stupid. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely happened. I mean, you know, we've had uh, – I mean, we had a lot of audience – uh, reaction after the election, of course, and we had. I, I think in the the Chicago company had somebody removed because they were screaming. Oh, that was on, that was on video, show. right? I think so. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I mean, and that's really scary to be honest. I've had I've had people in a show put things on the stage while I was performing, um, like flowers or no, no, like somebody. It was like a, I think it was supposed to be a gift, but it's like it's scary when you start to see somebody in the darkness coming towards you while you're on a stage. You freak out. Um, but it, it's it, yeah, it's totally rude. It's it's rude to comics, and I'm and I'm when I've been watching a comedian perform and somebody starts doing that, it makes me uncomfortable. It's awful. I'm not saying it's good, but what I am saying is <laughs> that I like that the art form is so in your face. Yes, you know what I mean. That that like. People don't do that on Broadway, not just because there are a lot of drunk people seeing Broadway shows, but they think that we're, we're not real. You're not we're, people. Yeah, we're right. not people. They are having, a, they feel like they're having a conversation with you. Like right. I said before, like they think they're at a, a party at someone's house yeah. and you're just coming up with this. So they might as well come up with their own thing. Right. You know what? You're not wrong. And and uh, my friend Carla Felicia, who's now uh, writes on sitcoms and she's great. After one show, I did say, I was like, why does everybody feel the need to yell out during me? And she goes, well, you kind of bring that on yourself. Your persona makes them think you're having a conversation. Yes. And again, like we're always learning. You know, even in, in stand up, I've been doing this a lot of years. You know, uh, you're, you, you, we're still learning. I mean, it's a. And when she said it, it was like another eye opening thing. Like, boy, I do. I need to figure out a way to make it look like I want that without wanting that. Right. And you know, luckily, I've figured out how to do that now. Yeah. No. I mean, well, you aren't gonna let it bother you and i think you can probably like move through it but it's hard because you are a you're a likable person and and you're a comedian who makes it a party instantly you walk in this room me and matt are just kind of sitting around (laughs) um because i was a half hour early i don't know if we mentioned that you did not um (laughs) so you walk in and all of a sudden the energy is up you know you know how to walk into a room and make it you know exciting and fun and i think that people just respond to that so well i was excited to see you by the way oh so yeah right. take sure, some sure. responsibility sure. and on you that. are you like you said before you are a legitimate broadway fan i want all of my listeners yes. to know that you i i can i can tell when somebody like really likes broadway and really likes hamilton and when someone is just like oh other people have liked this so right. i like it too i you're you're the real deal first show i saw was evita Oh, right. And uh, I think you told me that. With John Herrera and Valerie Somebody. I will never remember her name. I oh, always want to see Valerie, Valerie Perrine, Somebody was a legend. She was very good. She played Ava. <laughs> hey, if she was Ava Perone, she was right? phenomenal. Yeah. I wish I could remember her name. Uh, but I so that was the first one. Loved it. Superstar. Yeah. I, I was a Lloyd Webber guy for a lot of years. I just yeah, heard yeah. you're talking about Starlet Express with uh, with Joe. You're with Joe. Joseph and, uh, Boy, do I not care for that show. 
Yeah, I've never seen it, it's but I know some of the songs from Andrew Lloyd Webber's Greatest Hits. That's how I know it, too. That's it. Although I saw the show and then was like, I'll never need that yeah. again within the Greatest Hits. Yeah, then the, um, it stays alive on those cassettes. But I, lo- I love it. I, lo- I love show tunes. Yeah. I love Broadway. I love yeah. everything about it. Do I wish I could have done that? Yes, of course. I, I mean, so funny if, if tomorrow me. somebody called up and said, look, you don't have a great voice, but we want you to play Aaron Burr for a night. Uh, I would of course piss my pants like yeah. a crazy person, yeah. but I would, but I would, I would do it because yeah. I, I would rather just be the guy in the background, probably, uh, yeah, you yeah. know, uh, uh, singing along with you know, vote for Burr, Man uh, Six. What you could be Man Six. I'm in. If you if you need me to be Man Six, I'm <laughs> I'll in. T- I'll see if there's any openings over Talk the next. To, I know months. you guys have a limited run here, but I'm yeah, I'm in. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I love. Yes, I love love it. Yeah, I know. I know that you do, and, I, and that makes me so happy. I love finding people in other fields, especially comedians, because I, I, that's how I feel about comedy and right. about being a stand-up. I've gone up there. I've I've done it, and it's it's um, fun. But I know I'm not a stand-up. The other part of knowing that I'm not a stand-up is the schedule and the touring, and it is a hard life. I a lot of people give. Uh, me too much credit probably for the eight shows a week how do you do eight shows a week well i'm going to the same theater you know maybe you know i'm on a quote-unquote tour but we've been in two cities it's five months in san francisco five months in los angeles how do you cope with going from city to city i'm sure now it's a little it's a lot easier because you can pick and choose where you want to go but in the early days i'm sure you were just Rory. it was when i started and again i thought i was in show business yeah uh I would get in my car and I would drive eight hours to do a show in a bar in Ohio. Yeah. But because I was leaving my home, I felt like, like I said, this is show business now. But it was just as bad of a bar as the one I was doing down the street from my yeah. house. Yeah. But I thought I was going to a different state, so it was more important. And so I would do a show there. Then I would drive, wake up the next day, drive eight hours to the next one, then drive eight hours to the next one. And then hopefully the weekend would be two nights in the same place. Right. And I did a lot of that. I did a lot of what they, we, you know, we call them one-nighters um, when I started. And I was not lucky enough to be working the A rooms like my, you know, some of my friends were. Um, and maybe that's because I quit my job too soon, quite frankly. I should have still been doing open mics and having a day job instead of going to Ohio and making 50 bucks a night and, you know, then eventually declaring bankruptcy. <laughs> but I probably should have stayed at – I was working for MCA Records at the time, the record label. Um I probably should have stayed there longer and just done the open mics and done the stages and and then worked the A rooms. Uh, but I chose to do this other path, which ended up being okay. Uh, but horrible. I yeah. became a drunk. Yeah, I was. Uh, I'm sober now, 18 years. Wow. But I was a I was a drunk out of boredom, hmm. not addiction. And I and I stand by that. Yeah. Uh, that's not to say I never want to go back to doing that. I, yeah. And in fact, I I don't trust myself. And which I'm sure, which I guess makes me an addict. But I was bored out of my mind. I'm in I'm in Portsmouth, Ohio by myself alone. Well, what am I going to do? I'm going to stay at the bar that just enjoyed me and get drunk and have people be my friend for a few hours. So I would get I was a drunk for years. Right. So um I which would make getting up the next day to drive 8 hours miserable because you're hungover if not still drunk. Yeah. Um you know, I don't know how I said to my wife the other day, I don't know how I didn't kill somebody. I don't know how I didn't kill myself. Yeah. I don't know how I never got a DUI. I mean, I, I mean, and I mean, I mean, I don't know how I got lucky and that didn't happen. And yeah. I, I, it's, it's amazing to me considering I know how drunk I was. Yeah. Um, and again, I'm 18 years sober and thank, you know, thank everybody. Um, Almost so many, so many people in our business who are successful like you 
have that story. Yeah. Like you have to decide one way or the other. I haven't had a drink in over 10 years. You? Yeah. Good for you. Yeah. And I mean, I stopped when I got my first Broadway show because I was like, oh, I'm either going to go one way or the other. And my last name's O'Malley. So I better keep this in check. (laughs) Yeah. You know, my dad said it best to me uh, right before I stopped drinking. It still wasn't the reason I stopped drinking, but he said – he said, I'm a little concerned about how much you're drinking. I go, Dad, I got to figure it out. I, I've never missed a show. I've never missed a meeting. I've never mm. missed an audition. Yeah. And he said, but how are you showing up to those auditions? Yeah. And it was like, oh, shit, he just nailed this. Yeah. He just, and he's not kidding. I had an audition for Diagnosis Murder, the Dick Van Dyke uh, uh, show, um, which would have been a dream to work with Dick Van Dyke. Are you yeah, kidding yeah, me? Yeah. He was my one of my heroes growing up. Yeah. And it was a great role. It was a role I should have gotten. And I had to run out of the room to vomit. In the middle mm. of the audition. And I blamed Carl's Jr. that I had a bad lunch on the way in. Right. But I knew. And they had to know. They had to yeah. smell the alcohol on me from the night before. I was hungover. It was miserable. And, uh, you know, I never auditioned for that woman again. And nor should I have. I was uh, it was an embarrassment. Right. Um, but I didn't miss that. I didn't miss it, Dad. <laughs> you were there. I didn't miss it. You were there. Uh, so, but to go back to the road, it was awful and it and i hated it and when i first moved out here in 95 to to, or second when it second i moved out here to be a a comedian um i'd go on the road for six weeks come back here for four weeks six weeks four weeks six weeks four weeks so i never built up any steam here i still made basically was a road comic right uh again a drunk one um and then luckily i got a game show and then then i got another game show then i got a pilot and then i got another pilot and and i started getting work here in town which then meant i didn't have to go on the road as much yeah um cuz i was making some money here and then uh you know it, it all started clicking and and luckily and then i got another game show and um you know I, you and i were in dream girls together and i was cut out that's right that's right that's our uh, fun trivia which by the way there's a 5 hour version of that being released as we speak what there's five hours of extras of, 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 extras dream of dream girls and i still wanted it no <laughs> how the hell do I, I don't make that cut wait what's that let's tell that story here because we told it on okay. on your podcast but you were in the movie you yes. thought you were going to be in it until opening oh no you I, got a call right before uh, i got a it. call uh, so i got i did an audition i didn't even audition for this thing i got a um my agent got a call that oh damn it, it's not Rob Marshall who directed Bill it. Bill Condon. Bill Condon, thank you. Rob Marshall yeah. did Chicago. Right? Yes, yes. Uh, it was Bill Condon who was a, a very nice man. Yeah, and I, great I, man. I apologize for not remembering his name. Um, apparently, he's a fan or liked some. He'd seen me somewhere and liked me. Yeah. And so, in the script of Dreamgirls, every time somebody was being introduced on stage, it was done vo, uh, mm-hmm. uh, voiceover for the people that don't mm-hmm, know what that mm-hmm, means. Mm-hmm. Um, but because he wanted to make the dreams their first time away from Jimmy. He wanted to make that special. He wanted that VO to be shot by a per with a human being on camera yeah. saying it. So they, it was offered. I got offered to be in dream girls and uh, I was put on hold for two weeks and uh, I had to cancel some road stuff. And it was like, Oh, I don't care. I'm, I'm in my, I'm going to be in dream girls. How great. And again, it's a guy who loves yeah, Broadway. Yeah, yeah. You Are you kidding me? Yeah. Um, so, I get the script and I'm looking through it. I'm like, well, at the time I didn't know that that's even what they wanted. I'm like, well, where the hell's my role? I don't even see the role in the script. And yeah. then they, uh, the uh, second AD or whatever called me up and said, you know, your role is this. It's the VO on page 27 or whatever. It's right. three lines or whatever that is. So um, I got there at six in the morning. 
And, uh, you know, typical Hollywood story. You yeah. get there at six in the morning and they rush me into makeup. You're first up. You're yeah. first up. Yeah. They rush me into makeup. Uh, I go into uh, uh, the, the uh, makeup uh, and Annika Rose. Aniko Noni Rose. Uh, yeah. what, what did I say? Anika. Anika. Yeah. Uh, Anika Noni Rose. She's in there and uh, Jennifer Hudson and beyond. They're getting their makeup and yeah. I'm getting my makeup and they're talking and, and it was like, oh, this is neat. And at the same time, I'm going to be out of here. <laughs> In 12 minutes. Yeah. Um, well, then they come in and they tell me, uh, sorry to make you rush. They've set the stage for the wrong scene. They're going to be doing the dreams number first. Sure. Which is one of the. Iconic, amazing, uh, amazing. things about dream girls. Yeah. Uh, right. We're your dream girls. But yeah. And so you get to watch. I get to watch that for 15 hours. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. For 15, 15 hours. Well, because yeah. it's it's the scene. It's like, the scene. And they and even throughout the day, the, the second day would come and go, Bill's trying to figure out if we could just shoot you real fast, set some lighting, but lighting's fighting him on it. They, you know, right. blah, blah, blah. They don't want to do it. And uh, so it may be a long day for you. But yeah. we're trying to get it because the truth is it will take five minutes. Yeah. So – Finally, all right, that was 6A, my call. It was 6A, rushed into makeup. I'm in makeup by 6.30 uh, at 11 at night. Yeah. They go, Jimmy, we're ready. And I oh walk in, and now God. they literally, lighting finally acquiesced and said, fine, shoot this other thing. So Beyonce at Jennifer Hudson, and say it again for me, please. Anika Noni Rose. Anika Noni Rose. They were like, hello, and I'm, hello. And they literally stood off to the side, ended up sitting. 12 feet from me while they lit this one spotlight on me. With oh, the, and my God. According to everybody, it looked gorgeous. Yeah. I said my line. I did I did my line. We, we did three takes. Took four and a half minutes. I turned and I go, that's 18 hours of work, everybody. <laughs> and everybody laughed and the, and the girls all applauded. And and he came over. Bill Conley was like, thank you so much for your patience. That was great. Uh, so great. You know, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and then I leave. And yeah. I'm like, I'm going to be your dream girls. Yeah. It's the most important part of the movie. It's like this thing. It's introducing right. the dreams. Yeah. And I also love the idea of people going to see Dream Girls and going, is that Jimmy Pardo? Is that <laughs> yeah. Jimmy Pardo in this yeah. epic musical yeah. movie? Right. Uh, movie musical. Uh, so I'm, I see the release date. I'm seeing the posters. I'm getting jazzed about it. I'm getting yeah. excited. Yeah. And then the day of the red carpet premiere, my manager calls me and goes, I got bad news. Oh. They... Wanted the consistency of the VOs, after all. Uh, so you got cut. Oh. Well, that explains why I don't wasn't invited to tonight. And um, but I was in it. Although, as I just said to my wife and me, somebody on Twitter, it's like I'm beginning to think there wasn't even camera in the, uh, filming the camera. I'm beginning to think they just, just went the light. They're get, like, all right, let's get this guy right? out of here. Put a light it's on been him. Shut him hours. up. Right. Put him out of his misery. Yeah. Well, I wasn't invited to the party either. Why and I was you? in the damn thing. You were I in it and a big part. I, I, well, big part. I was a full minute. Um, yeah, was, but it still was an important it, part of the movie. It was. And no, the musical. It was great. And I, I honestly, I was so scared that it was going to get cut till the last minute because you never know. You never right. know. They could have reshot it with somebody else and you just, you're not really told a lot of things. Right. And it's not a personal thing, but you know. You you're usually the last person to find out yeah. that you're cut from something, um, but you were in that comedy world. You're hosting. You're doing a lot of game shows. How did Conan and that and that whole thing oh, get started? Uh, 
that was. Um, are you okay on time, by the way? Yeah, I don't want you to have this no, epic okay. episode where nobody knows who I am. No, I, I uh, have I have free reign. I can be hours, uh, but I want to talk about Conan for sure. I had again. I had been doing shows at the UCB Theater and uh, you know doing stand up and, and hosting some yeah. television. Um, and Andy Richter, who I knew a little bit at the time, okay. not a lot. Um, this is what I'm told. I'm at, I'm actually at a movie theater. I get a uh, phone call from my manager saying, "Hey, they want to meet you tomorrow to be the warm up." comic for the tonight show with conan o'brien and i said when i go i don't want to be i don't want to be a warm-up you know what do you, what do you mean that that's not what it's, i didn't move here to point out the exits and tell people to turn off their cell phones and he's like why don't you, why don't you take the meeting why don't you just go and meet with them and right the truth is here the show busy version of this is that i had had a dream that i got hired to do something on the tonight show with conan o'brien i always imagined that conan and i would hit it off i had never met him huh by watching his show it was like he and I probably have the same sense of humor. We probably, I mean, he's much yeah. smarter than I am. I'm a dingbat and he's a, you know, went to Harvard <laughs> yeah. uh, or Yale. Where'd he go? Doesn't, Harvard. We never spoke. Um, <laughs> so I I said, all right, I'm, I, I had this weird dream that I got hired. It's like, you know what? I, I'll go to the meeting. So I went to the meeting and Mike Sweeney, who was the head writer, uh, came into the office and sat down on a beanbag chair and the beanbag chair didn't support him. And he fell off the beanbag chair. And so then he just laid on the floor and did the interview from the floor and I immediately went, I've got to take, in my head, Oh my God. you've got to take this job. Right. This is already fun. Yeah. And he said, here's what's happening. And this was two days before, no, the day before the first test show of The Tonight Show with Conan O'Brien. Wow. And he said, we always had a writer do the warm-up, whether it was Louis C.K. or Mike Sweeney himself right. or um, Brian McCann, uh, who would write all day, then they would run down, do the warm-up. But now that we're here at The Tonight Show, we want a guy where that's all you need to worry about. We just need a guy to do that. And when we brought it up, Andy Richter, who again, I had only known a little bit, yeah. said the only guy that can do an, 10 minutes to an hour off the top of his head with the same sensibilities is Jimmy Pardo. Wow. You guys have to, you got to get Jimmy Pardo. And I, I'm sitting there, again, I'm already laughing at a guy on the floor and they tell you that. And he said, so we looked at one video, we were one minute in and Conan went, that's our guy. Wow. He said, so it's yours. And I said, yeah, I don't think I want it. And he's like, what? And he goes, if you don't take it, we don't know what we're going to do. And I said, yeah, I don't. And then he, he goes, he goes, let's go talk to Jeff Ross, the executive producer. Yeah. And he goes, Jeff, he says he doesn't want it. He goes, what, what do you mean you don't want it? What are you talking about? He yeah. sounds like Jackie yeah, Mason, yeah, Jeff yeah, Ross. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you mean you don't want it? What are you talking about? It's Tonight Show. Yeah. And he's not wrong. It's The Tonight Show, which was my dream growing up. Of course. Was to host The Tonight Show, to be on Johnny Carson. Yeah. Here I am giving an opportunity every day to be on stage with this guy, Conan O'Brien, who I also admire. And then I go, I said, I didn't really move here to be a warm-up. Well, it's a piece of cake. You know, you don't have to throw out candy. You don't have to do commercial breaks. You just go out. You do, at the time, it was only eight minutes. I ended up by the end of it doing 22. Wow. Uh, it's eight minutes. You walk out, and then you go and do sets around town. Whatever you're going to do. Yeah. And then I went, yeah, I don't know. He picks up the phone. Yeah, says it was money. So then Conan comes in, who I'd never met. So Conan comes and goes, what do you mean you don't want it? And looks around. There's no chair in the room. So he sits crisscross applesauce next to me, still taller than me in a chair. <laughs> and he goes, he goes, what's your hesitation? And I said, I go, I didn't really move here to be that guy. And right. he's like, just try it. He goes, just just try it. And if you, if you hate it, then bail. But give it a try. Yeah. And he goes, come on, let's go look at the stage. And so we went and looked at the stage. And I was like, all right, I'll do it. Yeah. And then, so then Rory, I wasn't good at it because I kind of was doing an impression of a guy doing warm up. Okay. I was doing an impression of what I had seen guys doing, going up and down to the aisles and the thing. And 
I wasn't great at it. So now I went from this job I didn't want to hoping to God I don't get fired. Right. Because A, it's a consistent paycheck in this crap town. Yeah. Um, and it's the Tonight it's the Show. It's the Tonight Show. But it's also one of the hardest jobs. I Obviously, you are so good at it and they could see you because of the thing that you said made you succeed as a stand-up is because you can work with the crowd. Yes. You can be on your feet. That's a very unique skill. And it's not just going up there and saying jokes that you've prepared. You have to be ready to see what the audience is. You got to do it all. And, 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 you know, which luckily with The Tonight Show and, and to a lesser extent with Conan because he ended up uh, on TBS, he got um, – it's more tour- – uh, it's, it's not as – I don't know what I'm saying. Yeah, uh, but it's not. It's it's a different show than it's it is. a different show, yeah, right? It, it's it's, it's almost all Conan fans at the yeah. Conan taping. Whereas with Tonight Show, it was people from all over the world, right? So you were never at a loss of, hey, anybody from out of town? They all are. Yeah, where are you from? Boom, and eight minutes went by like that. Yeah, and I eventually figured out how to do it, how to be a really good warm up act for that show. I could never do another show. Yeah, that's a skill to be a warm up guy on a different on a sitcom or a game show or whatever. Yeah, I figured out how to be a good warm-up guy at Conan. We then, of course, all got dismissed from NBC, went to TBS. I was lucky enough they brought me with it. I was there for six years. Uh, And it is uh, not overstating it at all. That one meeting with Conan and Jeff and Mike Sweeney uh, and the other, Steve Hollander, the stage manager, and Brian Kiley, one of the writers that were all in that room, uh, changed my life. It changed my life to get that job at Conan. And I am forever grateful to Andy Richter for suggesting me um, I left the job two years ago because uh, I got my another game show on the Science Channel, right. and uh, which was great fun uh, called Race to Escape. Mm. Uh, which I left, I was like, I had my own show, and it was time to move on, and sure. we all kind of felt it. And uh, I still do things for them if they need me, remotes, sketches. I, right. I guessed on there, but um, it was the great. It, I'm the luckiest man alive that that happened. It's great gig, yeah, it's a great gig, but it's very hard and there's a reason why they immediately were like, this is the only guy who can do it. Yeah. And how fun to be able to step up to the plate and hit those balls out of the park when you're the only one who can do it. Well, it, it, at that time. At that time. Now they yet, got a guy named Gary who does a great no, job. No, no, I'm sure. But, but I mean, it's, it's especially important when they're launching something. And, yeah. you know, man. But and you know what was neat the, about it, Rory, was, and again, I know I'm over-talking, but not at all. My, other, my personal parents agent, uh, TJ, said... Jim, this is a great. This is going to be great for you. Once they see how funny you are, you're not just going to do warm up. They're going to start putting you in stuff. And I was like, well, okay, maybe I don't know. And sure enough, when we went to TBS, uh, I had done a, one or two sketches that never that didn't make air at at NBC. Uh, and then we went to TBS. Uh, like the first week, I was in a sketch, and then I started doing remotes, like I said right. for them, and then uh, they had me uh, on as a guest, and then I got the phone call one day of. Uh, hey, Andy needs to miss a few shows. Conan wants you to co-host with him. And I was like, you got to be, are you kidding me? Wow. And he goes, do you want to do it? I go, want to do it? I've been poisoning Richter for years. I want to do this. <laughs> so this it was the like, plan. it was exactly what my agent had said. Like yeah. once they see what you have to offer, they're not going to ignore that. Yeah. And uh, again, I am forever grateful that I had that, yeah. uh, that opportunity. I think that it's, it's funny because um, so many times when we are on our journey, on our mm-hmm. path, we really hesitate to take those jobs or gigs that feel like a step back mm-hmm. or feel like you said, not why I came here. And sometimes you just have to go through the door that opens for you. Yeah. 
and say yes and see what happens because you don't know. It can be humbling. It can be like, oh, this this feels like a step backwards. But if it's a new step, if it's something you haven't done, it's probably something you should do. And in this, in this instance, it, it's you know I had hosted game shows on or, and 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 other shows on yeah. like the third tier of cable, yeah. which I loved doing, but nobody knew I existed. And here, so it was like here I am. I'm not the star of the Tonight Show, yeah. but it was obviously made the most impact in my career. Of course. So, yeah. uh, so yes to that. To Huge. all you young aspiring actors out there, it's the old cliche: take the deliver the note role. You know, hold the spear in the back. Yeah. Uh, hold the spear in a big Broadway show over you know being the star of you know the Goodbye Girls. Uh, that's not a real show. <laughs> good, wait, good. I wanted to the say, Goodbye Girl. Yeah, but I also wanted to say the Odd Couple, so none of my mouth wanted to work. How about the Odd Couple with two women? I uh, that was that's a, there is a version that of is the thing. Odd Couple. Do you remember the uh, the African American version as no, well? I didn't know they had uh, one of those. Ron Glass, who just passed away, uh-huh. uh, played Felix, oh. and I forget who played Oscar. Was it a movie or was it? I think uh, it was a, just oh. a play. Oh, okay. That, whatever, okay. Maybe they maybe it was one of those PBS. And now things. it's Matthew Perry. So, and he's doing a great job. He's doing a great job. Uh, you also have a family. Before we go, yes. I'd love to talk about how you have uh, dealt with being in this business and and a part of this business that is like going on. Still, you you get to choose where you go as a as a stand up, yeah. but you still have to go and tour and do, and do things yeah. and travel a lot. How have you um, maintained uh, family life? It's rough. Yeah. Uh, you know, my son is 10 years old now. I've been with my wife. We're, uh, we're together uh, 19 years. Wow. Married 13. She is, without a doubt, the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Yeah. I've had great relationships in the past with great ladies, but this obviously is the magical one. Yeah. Um, and then 10 years ago, we had this little boy named Oliver who is just the greatest little guy in the world. We are, my wife and I, every day we say, Do you, you realize how lucky we are with him, right? Because he yeah. is a joy. And when he was a little baby and I had to go on the road, uh, it would crush me, but he didn't know I was going. Yeah. And then I was, that he's getting older. And when I say, yeah, I gotta, I'm going to be gone for a couple of days, I just see in his eyes, it's, you know, it's cats in the cradle, Harry Chapin. Yeah. And, uh, and it, it's a bummer, man. It's yeah. a, I get on the plane and I, like, I want to FaceTime immediately, but then I look at, the, it's like, oh, he's at school now. And, yeah. uh, it's rough. And it's, uh, you know, it's not, I mean, I know every father has to, the you know, the seven to five job, whatever it is, and they're not always there. But, and this is my version of that, but it's still, uh, it sucks. Yeah. Uh, but he's getting, he also is to the age where he understands that I have to do this to, you know, this is you know, for my career and, right. and to, you know, make sure he could eat. Um, and my wife is a comedy writer. Yeah. Uh, and so she also is in this weird business of, you know, sometimes you work for three years in a row and then sometimes you don't work for a little while yeah. and, you know, the, the stress of that. And But she comes from show business and, you know, my, my uh, her father played Chekhov in the original Star Trek. Wow. Uh, Walter Koenig. Wow. And, uh, and her brother, Andrew, who's since passed away, who was a great guy, uh, was boner on Growing Pains. Oh, so no way. So she comes from, and she had done some child acting yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they... She knows the business. So I got lucky in that I married somebody that understands the business, understands sure. the ins and outs and how yeah. you know, it's, you're, you're up and then you're down. And, and, and we're not in the same. She's, she started as a stand up. That's how we met. Uh, but she's a writer and I'm a stand up or yeah. I'm, I'm this performer. Yeah. So we're never in competition. It's never, oh, you're working. I'm not working. It's, it's, we are literally rooting for each other at all times. Yeah. Um, 
I've had shows where I was lucky enough I was able to hire her as a writer. Uh, she's had shows where she's recommended me to host it. Sure. Um, so we're lucky. I mean, I, I look, we fight like anybody. Yeah. But, you know, we're, we're a normal couple. Yeah. But and it's hard. Marriage is effing hard. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I am lucky that I that this woman tolerated me this long and. Um, uh, we have, again, our son is funny and he's going to probably be a comic. Thank God he's funny. Oh God. <laughs> he's, what do I have? Two or three months left in this business yeah, tops. Right, right. He's, I'm going to ride his coattails the second <laughs> right, I can. Right. No, I mean, obviously there's a lot of trade-offs, you know, when, when we do what we love, you have, you know, you have to have a lot of sacrifice and it's harder when it's the sacrifice for your family. However, Obviously, getting to grow up in a household that has your wife and you, who I said, like, when you walk into a room, it's a party. It's fun. Um, I think that that's why people have invited you into their cars and living rooms and on their headsets, because you are a, a great personality. And I'm really grateful that you would be on my podcast. I am. I, I'm tearing up because that is. Thank you for saying that. It's and, the truth. And I am. I'm, I'm honored that you took that. You, I, I, am I your first non-Broadway person? Um, well, I had my husband on. I interviewed my husband so that he could complain about me for a full hour, which was a huge mistake. I have not heard that episode huge mistake. yet. But yes, you are you are uh, the first uh, uh, pro- entertainment professional that I've spoken to who's outside of the Broadway realm. But one, you got the street cred. You are a Broadway fan, and mm-hmm. you were in Dreamgirls. We'll find the lost footage. What? I mean, we. Ha- I'll, I'll. I'm gonna find this. How could there be five hours be five released hours? and there's not? And it's still not that. The three takes. I'm gonna get all three takes. Well, you know what's gonna what's gonna bump me out is is eventually I'm gonna see that and go. Oh, that's why it was cut. <laughs> oh, it was a it was a performance. <laughs> it was a performance issue. It wasn't for time or consistency. I sucked. I'm sure that's not the case. Um, but thank you so much. I will. Uh, let your manager know if I keep you in this episode or not. Oh, um, um, I, you're gonna you're gonna I cut, cut around you me. Out. Yeah, I might cut you. Out. That makes sense. <laughs> uh, I also, if I may, I have a brand new podcast in addition to Never Please. Not Funny. We have a game show called Playing Games with Jimmy Pardo. Oh, yes. It is a 30 minute game show uh, podcast. That's amazing. Where people call in, and we have uh, uh, I have a different guest host every yeah. week, uh, and great people like Nikki Glaser and Scott Ackerman and Lauren Ash and Crystal awesome. Alonzo. Um, and it's great, great. And uh, I'm, you, I'm you really do proud game of it. show on on Never Not Funny. You always ha- have that, and yeah. So that's it's what I want to do for a living. It's what it's I great. love doing. And it's so great. we have this new podcast. And I just wanted to make sure that if people look at Never Not Funny and they go two hours, that seems like a long time. This is a nice bite sized version show. of my nonsense. That's awesome. Thank well, thank you so much thank for being for on having... my nonsense. I loved it. Good. Audition side job swimming upstream. Believe it or not, you're living the dream. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.